This is the Hearts and Minds podcast, conversations about investing and impact. Welcome to the Hearts and Minds podcast. I'm Maggie O'Neill, Head of Marketing and Operations. Thank you for joining us today. Hearts and Minds Investments is a unique ASX-listed investment company which has two objectives, to maximise long-term returns to shareholders while also providing vital financial support to leading medical research institutes. There are so many brilliant individuals that help us by donating their time, their expertise and their intellectual property. In this podcast series, we are bringing you in on meaningful conversations on impact and investing to discover more about the incredible people in the Hearts and Minds ecosystem. Today, it is my pleasure to be joined by Chief Executive Officer, Paul Rayson. G'day, Paul. G'day, Maggie. How are you today? I'm very well. That's great to hear. Well, today we are joined by a brilliant researcher in our ecosystem, Dr. Marino Festa, who works in the Kids Critical Care Unit out at Westmead. Tell us a little bit about your chat. Oh, it was it was a really wonderful conversation with Reno. He gave us an insight into you know what happens in a children's intensive care unit every day. The team out there do an amazing job. They care. They're professional. Uh, they look after our kids when they're most needed. And he's a, a wonderful, warm human being. I couldn't agree with you more, Paul. As you touched on in the conversation, it's always eye-opening when we visit the unit and seeing the team in action caring for the sick children when they're at their most vulnerable. It's quite confronting sometimes, but very humbling at the same time. I found it really interesting to hear more about the research side that Reno leads and the ways he's trying to push the boundaries to deliver better care for kids, not just here at Westmead, but nationally and internationally too. Let's jump into it. I'm here with Dr. Marino Fester. Reno is the Medical Director of New South Wales Kids ECMO Referral Service and a Senior Specialist in Paediatric Intensive Care at Children's Hospital at Westmead. Reno is also the past Chair of the Paediatric Group of the ANZICS Clinical Trials Group and Medical Research Lead for Kids Critical Care Research at Westmead. Reno trained in paediatrics and intensive care at Evelina Children's Hospital London and completed his MD in the study of meningococcal septic shock in children at Imperial College University of London. Reno is a fellow of the College of Intensive Care Medicine and a member of the Australian and New Zealand Intensive Care Society. Reno's research interest is in health system improvement and the rapid translation of new knowledge to improve the quality of care and long-term outcomes of critical illness in children. Reno, welcome. Thanks, Paul. It's great to have you as a guest of, of Hearts and Minds. Now, Reno, you work in children's intensive care, which, you know, as we know, is, you know, babies and kids with critical life-threatening conditions. And not only that, you conduct research on how to improve intensive care treatment for kids, which, as we know, is a very difficult environment to do research in. Reno, you couldn't have picked a tougher job. So, Tell me why. Tell me what led you to be a medical researcher. Well, I mean, um, I think I couldn't have picked a more rewarding job. It's a privilege to do the job that I do and the team that I do it with. I, I guess meeting children and families at a time where they're, they're at a low ebb, they've got uh, concerns around critical illness, it's extremely rewarding and humbling uh, in roughly equal measure. And um, I think I learned pretty early on that it's really important to question and challenge what our current understanding is of, of the biology of critical illness and, and really important to challenge existing dogma, the things we accept as the way we do it. 
And so, yeah, it's not really a choice to do research. It's more an obligation. And uh, I think people, mentors in the past have really shown me the way. Mike Levine at Imperial College stands out, others too. So uh, I feel like it's part of the role. Was there something in your in your childhood or through your school years that sort of, was there a trigger or just a general curiosity about medicine and, and helping people? I mean, I grew up in the east end of London, the area I grew up in. There weren't many doctors, but I was lucky. A friend of mine, in fact, my best friend, Robin, his dad was a GP and, you know, hanging out with him when I was very young, it was immediately obvious that there were a lot of uh, unusual toys in the family home, <laughs> stethoscopes and instruments uh, that, that his dad would bring home and then leave lying around that we would pick up and wonder what they were for. So there was this curiosity, and I think that stayed with me. As I found out more, I became more curious, and the more I looked into it, the more I thought this is probably for me. And, um, yeah, it's turned out to be a good choice, I think. And your studies in London, that was more general, or was that heading towards intensive care, or was it...? Yeah, no, well, I studied, as, as we all do, uh, first up at St George's Hospital Medical School in London, and you come out of that with a baseline degree, and there's choices to be made after that, whether you want to move into a specialty, a hospital specialty or general practice or some other branch of medicine. And I, I was a little bit uncertain what I wanted to do. So I ended up doing a very general job in a really busy place in the emergency department at King's College Hospital in London. And and I, I just felt an affinity with the families and the children coming in there. And I'd volunteer myself to go and see them and try and work out what was going on. And that kind of led me into paediatrics in Brighton. And I think all the way along, I've just bumped into really strong mentors, people that I've looked up to. And that was certainly the case. Had a good time in Brighton, kind of appropriate level of responsibility and felt part of a team. And those things have always played well with me. I still think they're important now. And um, so the more I did, the more it kind of reinforced I was on a good path. And from the UK to Australia, what what triggered that move? Yeah, Brighton turned out to be a really important uh, place for me. I met my wife, future wife there, and uh, she's from Sydney. So yeah, the, the the option of coming to Sydney came up. To be honest, having done uh, a five year undergraduate course and then four years as a junior doctor in the NHS in the nineties, I needed a break. So it was a very attractive option to just go overseas and get away from the usual run of the mill and yeah I ended up in Sydney and that was good because uh, I had a few breaks in Sydney as it turned out when I first got here I mean my the reason one of the things I really wanted to do was fly around in a helicopter and uh, uh, and and do retrieval services and the flying doctor bit and I did get to do that it was amazing to to be able to do that and um, again very rewarding and taught me a lot about taking responsibility and working as a team with the, the other clinicians on the team. And so that helped me grow as a professional. But also, uh, you know, it just happened that they were short on the roster in the intensive care unit. And so I was asked if if I'd volunteer, and so I did. I met Professor Jonathan Gillis there. He, he was in charge of the director of intensive care when the children's hospital was at Camperdown. So it's going back a little way. But Jonathan was amazing. He he had this uh, amazing uh, ability to make everybody in the team feel important. And he's the first person I'd really met that asked me what I thought, that properly asked me what I thought. Just me and him walking around looking at a patient and he wanted to know what 
me, the junior doctor, thought about the patient when he was the professor of intensive care. And that, that was very humbling and made me feel good that I had an opinion that counted. So, you know, I am a lot. And then he, he, he persisted in his mentorship for my career in ICU and, and uh, yeah, so on it went. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing how, you know, no matter what industry or sector you work in, the, the importance of mentors at certain stages in your, in your early career really does set a path for your future direction. So, no, that's amazing. So let, let's turn to the intensive care unit and the environment. I guess the public has a general understanding of uh, what happens in intensive care units, but what are the most common reasons for kids being in ICU and, and you know, what are the rough stats? Hmm. So the, the most common reason for babies and children being in a hospital is that they've got a respiratory illness, if you look at the stats. When we look at the intensive care, we, we see, you know, around 1,300 babies and children from day one of life up to 16 years in our intensive care unit with all sorts of problems. You can divide them up into people that are there because, well, everybody's at risk of uh, coming to some form of harm uh, or even dying. And um, so the, the whole emphasis is to make sure that doesn't happen and that we return them to their best health as quickly as we can and then um, allow them to leave us and, and go on and thrive. So uh, broadly, there's two groups of patients we have in the intensive care unit. Patients that we know uh, have to go through a really difficult time, usually as a consequence of needing a, a major operation, say a heart operation or a brain operation or a transplant. And they're kind of uh, booked or we have a warning they're coming. So uh, and then there's patients that just turn up any time, day or night, because they've, they've suddenly become unwell or have had an accident or a burn or a drowning and they need help. And we have to try and get them to their best recovery. So about... I'd say there's a roughly equal split within the Children's Hospital Westmead ICU of those two broad groups, and there's all sorts of different problems within that. Mm. I understand um, from the little bit of reading I've done is that the success rates in Australia, you know, the post-intensive care unit survival, you know, the quality of life beyond and morbidity rates are very good in Australia relative to other countries. Is that, mm. is that right? Yeah, I think in, in Australia and New Zealand, we, we collect data in a centralised registry at ANZICS, and so we do have data going back just about two decades. We can see from that that our outcomes when we benchmark across the world are very good uh, in terms of mortality. So very few, thankfully, uh, babies or children die. Most people do get discharged from the ICU. We know a little bit about what happens after that, but we need to know a bit more, and I'll probably talk about that when you ask me about our research. But um, overall, the standard's very good in Australia and New Zealand, uh, but, you know, we're looking to make that even better. Mm. Now, I imagine there isn't a typical day in an intensive care unit with planned and unplanned patients, but as much as possible, can you give a sense of, you know, what a typical day is in intensive care for you? Yeah, well, well there's two kinds of days, days when I'm... I'm, I'm covering the unit in terms of I'm, I'm the senior doctor in charge and there's days where someone else is doing that and I'm, I've handed the bat on and I'm either resting because it can be a little bit tiring at times, many hours consecutively worked, or doing other things that are of key interest like research. So, But in terms of my clinical day, it starts early. We, we have a handover between the junior doctors, the night team and the day team and concurrently the nurses are handing over too. Um, and that starts at 7.30. Then we start to round 
uh, on the patient. The ward round is basically an update of the current status of every patient with a collaborative conversation and, and single plan made for every single patient uh, with all the clinicians involved. And that takes a bit of time to get around uh, every single patient, the detail we need to. But by about 11 o'clock, 11.30, that's done. And after that, we start to see some of those booked admissions, people that we know were due to come. They've usually been in the operating theatre from early in the morning, and they're starting to come out of the theatres after three, four-hour operations. All the way along, we'll be tapped on the shoulder to review or see or assess or consider admitting or provide advice for any child in New South Wales in the hospital, outside the hospital, that may be in trouble um, or looking as though they're getting into trouble. And so we, we break off and do that. And then the, the day rolls on. Usually it's pretty busy. Sometimes there's time for a bit of lunch, but not always. Uh, we always get the juniors' coffees and um, sit around and reflect on what's going on for them and how the day's going, because I think that's really, really key thing to do. But, but generally at about five o'clock, we, we round again and we hand over to the night team. And so the day kind of ends... It's meant to end around 6.30, but the days are all different. I'm sure it's very, very busy. Having your child in intensive care, you know, is is pretty concerning and frightening for parents and, and the broader family. So, And often there are a lot of unknowns. You, you can't give the answers. How do you, as well as looking after the, the kids, the patients, how do you manage the families through that time? Yeah, look, I think that's a really important observation. Throughout our training in paediatrics, the, the, the family unit is always very much emphasised. So uh, we're, we're child first and foremost in our, in our care, but uh, as part of that, we have to understand the dynamic of the family or carers and to look after everybody. So the best way I've found of doing that is to, um, it's a bit cliched, but to try and form a partnership with the parents as to how you're going to proceed understanding that there's a lot of technology often around and attached to a child or a baby when they're in the intensive care unit and that we therefore completely dislocate the parents from their caring role. That's tough to take, having been a dad. It's not easy because every moment of every day is usually planned around the care of your baby or your child. And so taking that away from a family is a big deal. And then allowing them to be present and supporting them, but you know they're forced to witness in a way some unpleasant uh, moments uh, in in what's happening for their child. So it's really key that, that that our team, including me, supports the families to to be able to exist in that space and to stay strong and look after themselves and to come through it. So they've got something to give when we when we discharge the patients. Well, one of the things we've become more aware of is the the idea that that's traumatizing. And sometimes that's traumatising, not just because of what you might observe or, or feel or see with your own child, but a, it's a you know it's a single room, a lot of children going through a lot of things, and so there is the potential for kind of vicarious trauma. So, the, in our follow-up programs, we're, we're interested in how parents manage and how they continue to manage once they've left us. Mm. And you did mention the word team a number of times. There, intensive care is teamwork and does involve a team of people with with different skills. How do you organise and lead a team, particularly with those unplanned arrivals in ICU? Yeah, I think the key is to um, is to have the right people with the right uh, skill sets available all the time because you can't uh, schedule the moment where 
where the team has to come together to deliver a certain element of care. And it has to do that in a very timely and responsive way. So we're, we're there, actually physically there, and people are rostered. It's called intensive care because the rostering is intensive. We have a lot more nurses and doctors than other parts of the hospital. Uh, we try and be very proactive. Uh, and so we will, we, will, we will often go out and see people that are not in the intensive care to try and make sure that we understand the chance of them needing a certain level of therapy or not. But how, how do we organise? We, we, everybody has a job, a role that's valued that we talk about. We train doctors. We're a training centre for intensive care in Australia and New Zealand. We train nurses. We take new grads, but we also have experienced nurses. There's a whole nurse education team that helps supervise people at the bed space and build their skills. And we try and nurture all everybody, no matter if you're experienced or fairly junior. There's always room to grow. So we literally do organise, we literally do choreograph and practice and simulate events so that when they come in the most you know, time-pressed critical events where we're trying to literally stop somebody from dying, we're, we're kind of ready, we know where to stand, who we're going to be next to, what equipment should be to hand, how it should work, who's checked it, who's predetermined and uh, it helps us a lot when the moment comes around. Yeah. Now I've been out there, I've been to the kids' ICU unit several times now and it, you know, babies in critical, vulnerable situations, uh, anxious, frightened parents. You know, it's it's very heartbreaking environment. But each time, I'm I'm really amazed at the professionalism, the care, the resilience of the nurses and the specialists. You know, these are pretty special people, and you included. And when you see it in action, you really appreciate that um, we have people like this doing this job. You know, for, for our community, but it does take its toll. So. Day after day, what is the toll on the staff and, you know, how do you look after them in the medium, longer term? Mm. Uh, Because it's a pretty stressful job. Yeah, no, I think that's, uh, again, something that's really important and something, uh, an area that we try and pay a lot of attention to is how to sustain people and keep them healthy and well so they can give their best. I, I, I kind of mentioned everybody's got a role and I think valuing people uh, in that role and allowing them to develop their interest uh, further and their their professional skills is a is a key area. So that's hard to do when you're uh, rostered with a certain number of staff and you have a lot of patients uh, literally knocking at the door that may need your help. It's very difficult to set aside time to train uh, and simulate events when you've got real events um, happening all the time. But yet we we definitely do that and we value that and we try and protect that time we also understand that we need to things happen that are at times unpleasant sometimes not the outcome that anybody wanted and we need to talk about that so there's peer support available immediately and then uh, after a period of time's elapsed to reflect on what we do again and what we really would want to avoid next time and how to grow as a team i think being a team is the key thing that the one thing we do have is um, a really powerful motivating factor that everybody there wants to do the best they can for any child that we meet, no matter how dire or difficult the situation is. And we're pretty determined lot, so we, we don't give up easy. In fact, we never give up. We, we, we just try, we steer every time to the most appropriate and best outcome once we've learnt what that is for every family and every child. And I think that's the yardstick 
against which we'll, we'll always judge our performance. And so, so being honest and transparent and real with each other and supporting each other is a key thing. Uh, I think another thing we do expect of each other is that we tap out. So uh, I mentioned I'm not on the floor every day and I couldn't be. And when I'm not on, I've handed that on and I'm away. And um, my head's clear uh, in those moments and I'm just getting ready to come back. So I trust, therefore, the people I've handed on the care of the patients to and they trust me. And so this, this trust within the team is really important to build and maintain. Let's now turn to research, intensive care research. As you've you know, so well described, ICUs have a bias to action. You know, they're saving lives in an urgent setting and there's little time or funding for research into you know, how do we do this better. But that is what you do and you've been involved in over 50 research papers related to intensive care. You know, how would you describe the focus of this research? What sort of things are you looking into with research in intensive care? Mm. So I think our key interest is is really all around challenging assumptions and existing dogma and, and deepening our understanding of what's happening for babies and children during this period of serious illness or following major injury. And I think the challenge then is to translate new knowledge that we may accumulate in that way to clinical practice. So bringing that into the day-to-day management and care uh, of children and families. And we, as part of that, we're really seeking to understand what matters in the end in terms of an outcome for a child and their family. Uh, the ultimate aim is to rapidly translate new knowledge to practice that ends up delivering world-class care. And that's easy to say, and we've got to break that down. It goes beyond survival, but survival's part of that. But then um, how do we create a situation where we have healthy people growing up and, uh, and thriving in our society? And so what we really want to do is to enable everybody to recover to their full potential and then to go forward and give what they can uh, in their lives as, as things move on well away from the intensive care unit. So we're interested in the longer view. Mm. Doing research in intensive care unit, I imagine, is very difficult. You, you know, you're generally, you know, actually treating babies in life-threatening conditions, and there's often little time to, you know, to plan a study, get consent, explain to parents, etc., let alone conduct the research. But there are obviously ways to do that in that environment to study outcomes and, and data to do the research. Can you give me insight as to how it's done? Or mm. <laughs> this is the million-dollar question. Um, the, no, I think the simple answer is is um, the key here is to make research part of the normal day for all of us. So for the clinicians and the parents in the ICU, literally part of what we do and what we expect to be done. As I mentioned, it's almost an obligation to do it. So we weave it into the everyday. We, we, as part of that, we really need to give families uh, information and we need dedicated members of our staff that are not clinically responsible for the absolutely there, the care of the patient, their research member of our team. And they are there to provide information and support families and seek consent and do the other things that are so important to do to integrate research with the clinical care. So that's what we set out to do. Uh, we really value parent or carer family feedback as to how to do that better and that's something we we seek out so we we do design the studies and how feasible they are to conduct within the context of of looking after sick children and babies and they usually go through a period of feasibility testing in a pilot phase 
before we will be funded to to do larger scale studies and that's a really important stage and and, and that's where actually having uh, a budget to uh, support some of the resources I mentioned and the uh, seed funding of pilot studies is so crucial and important. Mm. Now I imagine intensive care research is you know it's very pragmatic research you know how do we do something better in the moment and I assume little things can make a big difference and can save a life. You know, is there an example of, of a small change that's occurred over the last few years that's made a big difference in the ICU environment? Yeah, uh, I think I think that that's the holy grail. Yeah, we'd really like a few of those, some completely uh, doable, relatively small changes. But actually thinking about that, the, the Atul Gawande is a, an author and a surgeon uh, from the US, um, he wrote a book called The Checklist Manifesto, I think, in around 2007. And um, he said he was inspired to write that after reading a story about a young girl uh, or a child who survived a fall into a frozen pond. And he apparently discovered that the physician who helped save her relied heavily on checklists. And so the role of checklists within the practice of, uh, of healthcare really was something that he talked about in his book. So we, we were interested in this, how to utilise uh, checklists um, within the work we do. And so we started some research to determine how experts in, in my field, in paediatric intensive care, use cues available from the environment. How do we know what's actually going on in situations where we don't have all the information? We're trying to accumulate quickly as much uh, information and knowledge as we can about what's happening with any particular child. And um, we, what we found is that the people that had been around a while and were experts in intensive care were using, uh, were using a lot of cues concurrently, including visual cues that the, the more junior training members of our teams hadn't quite learned to use yet. So got us thinking that we could try and crystallise out some of these key aspects of the environment um, and put them in a checklist so then everybody knows they're there and you can ask for them. And so we worked with Macquarie University School of Psychology to develop um, a checklist for, and specifically wanted to use this checklist to understand the risks and, the, and plan the management for babies and children being admitted to the intensive care unit after heart surgery. And we found that actually it was quite a useful thing to do to crystallise out the, the kind of gold nuggets that some people carry around, the experienced members of our teams, and put them all in a checklist so that our junior members of our teams could reference those and always remember to ask about them when they were receiving um, a, a new patient after heart surgery. And I think that's led to improved understanding and more rapid assessment of patients when, and children when they come back after heart surgery. And, and it's helped us to organise our teams to manage likely scenarios they might end up facing with particular children they, they receive. So that's one example that just springs to mind and pretty pragmatic way of uh, translating um, an idea into into practice. Yeah. Oh, it's a great example. You know, I, I might have expected, you know, a new medication or a new tool or something, but a checklist, which is basically a way of, you know, sharing experience and observation from more experienced members to the broader team. That's a great example. And I'm sure it makes a huge difference and applicable in a whole wide range of, you know, industries and and, and, and sectors. I, I did read one of the studies you're involved in, and I can't recall the full title. It was the top 10 study. It was a few years ago now, but it surveyed the top 10 research 
priorities for intensive care units. And it covered things like ventilation techniques, fluid and feeding techniques, uh, managing complexity and unknowns, uh, interpreting vital signs, infection, etc. You know, are they the sorts of priorities still? Um, you know, what is the current state of research in intensive care unit field? Are they the sorts of things you're looking at? So uh, that was an important study because it sought to gain opinion from a really diverse group of people, uh, nurses, doctors, working in intensive care, to ask them, you know, what's the next thing we need to know more about and do better, really? Um, so these areas, some of them you've mentioned, came out as specific areas for research where we need new knowledge or to improve current practice or to clarify decisions that we might make. I, I think uh, one of the things we've done building on that has, has been to um, sit back and look at who's investigating which area within paediatric intensive care medicine and, and practice. There's no point replicating work that's being done in London or Melbourne. We needed to look at where the gaps were. There's a lot to do. Um, you've mentioned a whole bunch of stuff just there. And so why replicate something when dollars are hard to come by and, and assets for research are difficult to maintain? So we wanted to work on areas where there were gaps. And um, I think that study helped us understand where some of the gaps might be. We looked around in New South Wales at where our local partners were and where their strengths might be. And so we came up with a strategic plan which kind of aligned our own interests to where the gaps are and where we might find willing partners. And we've, we've ended up with five themes of research and we've touched on a few of those already. But, you know, the, the whole idea of how we even conduct research in the ICU environment is is a topic of research interest because we can design studies in multiple different ways. And I think the traditional gold standard has been the randomized controlled trial, but that's not, I don't think, a particularly useful or easily um, used technique within the pediatric intensive care environment. So we're looking at alternative study designs and we've got some work very active in that area. Plus, ICU is a really data-rich environment. We monitor every patient. Most of that monitoring slides across the screen and then literally falls on the cutting room floor and we never see it again. So there's strength in, main, in keeping that. We, we think if we are able to store every single waveform, every second of uh, data that we can collect on all our patients and then have it there for later analysis using new techniques and machine learning techniques, that that's going to pay dividends in the future. So that's, again, another major area of research. And I think one thing that's going to be a, a huge thing in the next decade is to understand better the biology of what's going on for individuals and how their bodies are adapting to this state that they find themselves in when they're, they've got critical illness. It's not a normal way of being. It's um, imagine yourself running 100 metres and someone tests you at the finish line. You don't look normal and your norms, you will be breathing fast. Your oxygen level will be not the same as it was the day you got up, this, the morning you got up that day. And so I think understanding new norms uh, for different situations and how we then can intervene and improve outcomes from that is, is where we're heading. And so collecting samples on patients, uh, we have leftover blood samples sometimes and storing those for later analysis and then understanding longer term outcomes 
in a way that we haven't previously been able to and how choices we may make within the intensive care management can impact that, but equally how other determinants such as the social determinants of health or individual factors are playing in and the relative importance of all those things um, in the final outcome that we get. So there's a lot to do and marrying that together is part of our, is part of our strategic thinking. Mm. You sort of alluded to collaboration before, I mean, there are sick kids in intensive care units right around the world. How do you, you know, share information and, and, and collaborate on priorities? Yeah. Um, well, uh, lots of ways. There is a real communal drive to get to the answers within paediatric intensive care medicine. I've trained in two countries and that's one of the benefits of that is I know quite a lot of people um, around the globe in Europe and, and Australasia. Um, and we have networks uh, like our own, the paediatric group you mentioned I chaired in ANZICS. Um, there are similar networks in Europe, the UK and, and the US and Canada, and we are in regular contact with them. I think one of the things we understand we need to do once we have a feasible study is to scale it appropriately so that we can get the right number of patients with a specific type of problem we're looking into involved in the study. And that takes um, going overseas and forging these links and collaborations. And when we get the answer, we, we publish. And we don't just publish successful studies. We publish the way not to do it too. So that, um, and then we, we have peer review and we present and we're part of an international community that, that, that does this. And so I think that's the way forward. It's a global endeavour, really. Mm. No, it's, it's brilliant. And funding's the, you know, the perennial question that funding for research generally is, is hard. But how does funding for intensive care research fit compared to the big four disease groups? Do you, do you get your fair share, do you think? Or you always, <laughs> always deserve more? Yeah. But philanthropic funding, how does that play into the mix? Funding is extremely competitive and uh, I think, you know, the, the relative to the adult population, the, the, the critical care population in adults is much bigger and the ageing population is huge. And there are obvious groups like um, cancer therapies and heart disease that quite justifiably you get a lot of funding. So it's always difficult uh, at a national level competing you know, as we have to, with the national funding bodies to gain funding uh, from the NHMRC or MRFF. We're, we're lucky they're there and that, that we have access to that, but it's, as I say, very competitive. So this is where philanthropic funding really does come in because um, when we have a situation of small numbers of patients where we have the potential to make a big impact on someone's life, if you think about it in life years, uh, we need to kind of understand carefully elements like the feasibility of a study and the potential power to make a change for the good uh, before we can really go towards a large grant application to do the things we just mentioned, which is to get sufficient funding to really go global or go beyond one intensive care unit um, in, in the actual recruitment of patients for the study. So we really need the philanthropic funding is incredibly enabling in lots of ways. So it allows us to set some research infrastructure. So we have people that I mentioned that their job today is to support and inform families around research. Why do it? How do we do it? What does it mean? 
it's really important when you take a, a leftover biological sample, some blood, that it's appropriately dealt with and frozen quickly so that you don't lose the, the, the elements within the blood that you may wish to study later. So that takes people and time and centrifuges and places and freezers. And so all these things need to be there. So setting that infrastructure up is really key. So philanthropic funding has allowed us to do that. And it, it's allowed us also to plan to do that into the future uh, with some level of certainty we wouldn't otherwise have had. It also allows us to grow researchers. So we have a number of people now embarking on PhDs. And they're, they're, it's a really key thing to understand well how you conduct multicenter research in the field. And so um, that's what a PhD is going to uh, help teach people. And I think um, it also is a way of uh, progressing projects through PhDs. So that's, again, a key thing to be able to fund uh, and support people during a PhD. And philanthropic funding's very much allowed us to do that. So... In essence, it builds capability and a framework whereby we can then um, gain data that we can then push forward towards national funding bodies to try and justify a much larger funding for a multi-centre research project. What's the future of uh, intensive care research and what are the possibilities here? I think things are always changing. I recently spent a month in the UK visiting researchers at Imperial College and University College London. And as part of that, I came across a review article by an author called David Maslov and, and colleagues. It, it was focused mainly on adult intensive care research, but there's obvious parallels. It, it really allowed me to think and, re- and reflect a little bit more as to yeah, what is going to happen in the future. How will we see the care of uh, critically ill children um, and how will we make the best treatment choices uh, for, for them and their families? And I think as technology advances, it feels like um, we're at a point of change in, in the history of our uh, field. In the typically, well, um, uh, in, you know, the, in our history, in the history of medicine, actually, we've always characterised the patients by their appearance. We call that their phenotype or their syndrome, that they're turning up with so we'll classify them and when we go back to look at what happens we'll batch them by the kind of problem they had typically as part of that presentation how they look to us so you might turn up and you might be in the pneumonia group for example but I think that's going to change because what we're starting to see more and be more and more interested in is their biological response to whatever's happening to them whether it was pneumonia whether it was heart surgery if they then display a similar biology, I think we'll then batch them by the biological uh, consequence of what's happened. And that's important in not only because we'll batch them differently, but also because in that biology are biological pathways that will then give us targets uh, for intervention and future drug development and uh, other therapeutics that we might choose to use to try and alter the direction of their recovery and try and improve that. So I think this new knowledge and understanding of the biology of critical illness in babies and children, I think that's where we're going. And um, a lot of our the gearing of our research program uh, a kids critical care research has that in mind and I think that's going to be the challenge of the next decade. Reno, wrapping up, you have a very challenging and stressful job and also a very rewarding job as you as you said, which is probably the most important but but you know how how do you turn off? how do you relax? Uh, what are your interests outside of work? 
Yeah, I think I mentioned I, I have a um I think it's just something I can do where I where I can trust people and I can switch off. I think that you have to find a way to do that. I have my family and we we take family holidays, there's six of us, and uh, we try and at least once a year go somewhere together still. As they're getting older, that's a bit harder. But on my 50th birthday, we we all went off to England to walk along Hadrian's Wall, what's left of it, and that was, that was a great experience, um, walking across uh, Britain, along, across the north of England. I think it's really key for me that I find a way to exercise regularly and if I can dip myself in the ocean where it's uh, is a whole different world and a different peace of mind I'll find out there and just to switch off and reset. So, yeah, we also have a family pet. I think everyone should have at least one family pet. We've got Mackie, our dog, and she's she's fantastic for all of us. Wonderful. Thanks for giving us a great insight into what happens in an intensive care unit. And thank you for doing what you do. You know, I'm very humble about it. But um, I think, uh, particularly here in Australia, we're very lucky to have people like you caring for our kids in their, you know, most important dire need. So uh, thanks for doing that and continuing to do that. And and thanks for giving us an insight into uh, what happens every day in intensive care unit. So thanks, Reno. Thanks, Paul. You're, you're very generous. And I, I just... Um just want to emphasise what a team effort it is and how important the team is and that includes the families we work with so thanks for the opportunity to chat about it and that concludes another insightful conversation with a brilliant researcher dr marina fester a big thank you to reno for coming into the studio today to share more about the incredible work he leads in the kids intensive care unit and to give us an insight into a day in the life and a big thank you to you for listening in today i hope you found the conversation as enjoyable as i did We'll be back next week with another episode. To ensure you never miss a conversation, please subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. And better yet, send it on to a friend or a colleague who you think will enjoy the conversation. Your support is much appreciated. Until next time, stay curious. This is a Hearts and Minds podcast in partnership with Equity Mates Media. This communication has been prepared by Hearts and Minds Investment Limited, ABN 61 628 753 220. In preparing this publication, the investment objectives, financial situation or particular needs of an individual have not been considered. You should not rely on the opinions, advice, recommendations and other information contained in this publication alone. The inclusion of third-party content does not in any way imply any form of endorsement by HM1 of the products or services provided by persons or organisations who are responsible for the third-party content. This publication has been prepared to provide you with general information only. It is not intended to take the place of professional advice and you should not take action on specific issues in reliance on this information. Past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance.